We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. There are many similarities between the last time that we gathered together for one service, February 2nd, 2020, and today. Both are in the month of February. The Super Bowl that February was played between the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. That was the same this February, and the Chiefs won, which is a nice little event for a guy who was born in Kansas City. Less trivially, our service today, like that service four years ago, and this is unique for us, included singing of hymns with the organ as well as some singing of songs in a more contemporary style. That service, like this one, is followed by a meeting of the members of the church in which we are seeking to hear the voice of the congregation regarding my service among you as senior minister. There was a lot at stake for the community that day, and there's a lot at stake today. And there was much prayer leading up to that day four years ago, as there has been much prayer leading up to our time together today. Four years ago, we all wanted the will of God to be made known and clear. And that's the same today. Whatever one's perspective is, we are united in wanting God's will to be made known and to be accomplished. Our prayer is thy will be done. But there are a lot of differences also. Let's hope that the primary difference is that this gathering, unlike the one four years ago, isn't followed by a global pandemic in which we were all shut into our homes for a year. What a tough time that was, and one that I do believe still impacts us today. In that gathering, we came together full of peace and confidence that the Lord had been moving among us and unifying us and answering our prayers. We nearly knocked the roof off this place with our singing that day. I'd say we're still singing quite well today, but we also come in strife and conflict and struggle, not without hope, but beleaguered, anxious, and concerned that instead of unifying, we will fracture. Lord, have mercy. Four years, four years ago, some people outside of Park Street Church knew and cared about what was going on that day. Today, and very unfortunately, many more Christians across the country and even around the world are aware of our struggles. The one upside of this, I might say, is that there are many more Christians across this land who are praying for us right now and for our meeting today. And for that, I give thanks. Four years ago, I preached a, ser a sermon on the community of love. 
out of John 13, that commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified. When he told them that it's by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I'd like a couple of points from that sermon to hang over this sermon today and over our subsequent meeting. This love is for one another. You might remember four years ago, I asked you to look around the room. I'd like you to look around the room again, just for a minute, I mean it. These people, these beautiful and broken people, are the people that you and I are called to love. And I mentioned that day that they're not easy to love, but neither are you. <laughs> and neither am I. I suspect you believe that more now than you did then. I mentioned that this love is for the undeserving. And that is all of us. And I ask then, as I will ask again today, is there someone in this room that because of the way they've treated you or something they've said about you or their opinion on a contentious issue that doesn't align with yours, that you just feel they are not deserving of your love? And you are right, they're not deserving. Get that person in your head, and while you're at it, think for a moment about who might have just put you in their head. To love as Jesus loved means to be a radical forgiver and to love the undeserving. Ask God to lead you to turn your heart and your mind to love that person possibly even in a tangible way this week, and at least through your prayers for him or her. End quote. That was from four years ago. We're going to stop right now, and I'd like to ask each of you to spend 30 seconds praying for the person who came to your mind that you struggle to love. Pray for God to bless him or her and pray for God to change your heart. Father, I and everyone in this room has failed to love as we have been loved by you, by your Son. And we confess this before you, O Lord. Please have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon us. Take away our hearts of stone and give to us a heart of flesh. Take away our hearts of anger, our hearts of fear, our hearts of of animosity, hearts of pride, hearts of hurt, and give us hearts, new hearts, spirit-given hearts.
born-again hearts, that we might love one another as we have been loved by you. You know how much we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're all gathered together today, four years later, we're going to continue to think about love, but in a more specific and focused dimension of that love, as we continue in our series on Hebrews chapter 12, on running the race that's been set before us with endurance. And that specific dimension is guarding against sin in ourselves and in one another. Today we come to verses 15 through 17 of Hebrews chapter 12. And as we've seen in this series, a key principle for being able to run with endurance is removing hindrances from our lives. And those hindrances include the sin that clings so closely. And now we see that applied more specifically in our text as we are exhorted to keep one another and ourselves from sin. And this is a natural outgrowth from verse 14, which we spent time on a couple of weeks ago, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one sees will see the Lord. In fact, the participle in verse 15 that's translated for us, see to it, is connected to the verb in verse 14, strive. So it'd almost be like strive, seeing to it, that. So it's very connected to what's come just before. There's a general point here. So you look at verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then there are some specific applications or particular exhortations around three specific sins, all of which have some context and background in the Old Testament covenant community. So we want to just consider the general point and then take a look more closely at the specific points. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The see to it here is plural. Uh, to borrow from the South, y'all see to it. Everybody, it's all of our job. All of you are to do this together. As you're striving together for peace and for holiness, look out for this. For this in your own heart and for this in any of our member of our community, look out for these things. Look out for anyone who might be starting to slip off the path. This is the call to the entire body. It's a collective responsibility. And what is it that we are to see too? That no one misses or comes short of the grace of God. The ESV translates this verb fails to obtain. I prefer the NIV's misses or the New American Standards come short all of which are adequate translations, only because I think obtain feels almost like you can, you can earn it in a way. We think about obtaining things that we've earned. We never earn the grace of God, but we can come short of it and we can miss it. And this is a theme in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is known for its challenging warning passages to the Christian community. Like an arrow that misses the target, we can miss the grace of God. We need to be clear about what this is and what it isn't. I interacted with a, a New Testament scholar this week about this, and he wrote me and said that the only sign of genuine saving faith is perseverance, so that any temporary or periodic bursts of faith or repentance that do not eventuate in a life of growing faith obedience is not genuine. Perseverance is the sign of a transformed heart. 
end quote. And it's for this reason that you have these conditional statements running throughout the New Testament. Let me just give one example. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul, the apostle, writes this. And notice that he writes about what God has done. Obviously, the heart of the gift of God for us is the work that God has accomplished. So he writes about what God has done. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, not you, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's God's work. That's what God is doing. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Continue on, pressing forward, perseverance, endurance. This is a dimension of genuine faith, and it eventuates in an ongoing faith obedience in the life of the believer. The idea of missing out or coming up short in Hebrews is pointing back to the wilderness generation. The author of Hebrews uses this back in chapters 3 and 4. They'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt by the grace and power of God. They had received God's law on Mount Sinai. God had spoken. They had received God's presence again, dwelling among them in the tabernacle, right in their midst. They had so much, and they were marching on to the promised land to enter into the fullness of the gift or the grace of God, which they had already experienced in a tangible and real way in their lives. But they fell short. They missed. They failed. In chapter 3, the author of Hebrews quotes the end of Psalm 95 and reflects on their failure, this wilderness generation, to enter into the rest that God had offered. Why did they come up short? Because they had become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 even though they had seen and heard the good news, they rebelled, verse 16. They sinned, verse 17. They were disobedient, verse 18. And all of these in verse 19 of chapter 3 are related to unbelief. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And the verb there, to have failed to reach it, is the same verb here, to miss or to fall short of the grace of God. In other words, see to it that none in your community, none in this community, none of you individually or none of any of us collectively become like that generation. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't fail to persevere. Don't fail to endure. Don't step off this way of holiness to, to the side alleys that are dead ends of sin. You'll miss the mark. Paul suggests that this can happen in places like Galatians 5, 4. You are severed from Christ, he writes. You who will be justified by the law, he says this, you have fallen away from grace. And there are deep theological depths here that we are not going to touch today, I recognize. But I, I do believe that to be faithful in teaching the scriptures, we need to allow these kinds of, these dimensions of the scriptures to speak still. They were written to Christians. They were letters written to the church and they are written still to us, and allow them to do work in our hearts. Sin's deceitfulness can harden us 
its false promises, its counterfeit pleasures, its alluring benefits. You will be like God, the serpent says. This will feel good. You're justified in doing this, and more and more. But this always leads to a failure to endure, to a hardening of the heart, to a kind of unbelief which leads us to fall short, to miss the grace of God. I remember in a, sometimes talking to teenagers, this is true, and I remember thinking this as a teenager, you know, like, well, can't I just go do what I want because grace means that I'll be forgiven at the end? We think that way sometimes, don't we? And the New Testament's teaching would suggest that that is an incredibly dangerous path to walk because it can lead to the heart being hardened. And why anyway would you want to depart from the one who has given you life and love and forgiveness and peace? What were those sins for the wilderness generation? If we follow their story in numbers, we actually get a sampling. There's a fleshly desire, a strong craving for meat that God then sends quail, and many of them die. There's envy of Moses in his position, first engaged by Aaron and Miriam. Does God only speak to you? And then by Korah and Dathan and Abiram in number 16. We're all holy, and the Lord is among us too. There's fear. We will not do what you, God, have asked us to do. Those giants in Canaan are just too big. No thanks. And then there's presumption. After God brings judgment on them for not entering, they say, well, we'll just go anyway. We'll get it right this time. And they get defeated. And then there is this assimilation, an incident of sexual promiscuity and immorality associated with the worship of Baal in Peor in Numbers 25. Don't be like that generation. This is almost the heart of the book of Hebrews. Rather, run with endurance the race marked out before you, removing your hindrances, being encouraged by the great cloud of witnesses, and above all else, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't be like that generation. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There are three specific sins, then moving on here, that are mentioned. The root of bitterness, sexual immorality, and being unholy like Esau. And they actually have a lot in common. Sexual immorality is the gratification and indulgence of one's sexual desires and urges over and against the way and will and design of God for this great gift that he's given to his image bearers. It's choosing to do what we want with that dimension of our humanity rather than what God designs, and desires. Esau's unholiness is quite related to this, actually, out of a desire to satisfy his, un his hunger, his fleshly appetite. As we read in verse 16, he sold his birthright for a single meal. And what this means is that he despised his benefits as a legitimate child of the promise of Isaac, the firstborn. For the firstborn, that birthright meant security and prosperity and fertility and land. And Esau gave up these legitimate rights for a pot of stew to satisfy his fleshly desires. You and I, as legitimate children adopted into the family of God by grace, have been given an incredible inheritance, promises, and a birthright that includes inheriting the world 
and all that we see. Will we despise all of that, our birthright, as children of the living God, to satisfy our appetites, to love the world and its desires, to bow down to wealth or reputation? No, see that no one in your community is unholy like Esau. May we consider, like Moses did, the reproach of Christ to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And then there is the root of bitterness in verse 15, quoting Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, or nearly quoting, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What is this root of bitterness? Well, within the context of Deuteronomy 29, where the people of God are at the edge of the promised land, they're about to enter into that promise, into that rest, into that grace, and they're renewing their covenant with their covenant king, their deliverer and their rescuer, the one who had sustained them, brought them out of Egypt, and who had sustained them in the wilderness. And God is reminding them that the key stipulation of his covenant with his people is exclusive allegiance and service to him and to no other. Do not bow down to the false gods of the nations. That's what Deuteronomy 29 is about. But the root that is bearing poisonous or bitter fruit in that context is an individual within the community who, having heard God's clear word, decides to disregard it, to go his own way, and says in his heart, and this is from Deuteronomy 29, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That, that stubbornness is a hard-heartedness. And this can be caused by hardening in judgment upon another, by gossiping, by slander, by being stubborn and above correction, by being right, by looking only at the speck in our brother's eye, by taking revenge, by anything like that. In other words, any of us can become a root of bitterness in the community if we give into sin in any dimension of our lives. And this can happen through self-deception as well. We claim that we know that we are right, that we have the full and clear perspective on a matter, and as we become stubborn in this, we can become that root of bitterness. And when this springs up in a community, we read in our text, it causes trouble. That is to say, this root of bitterness not only impacts the person who originates with it, but it also begins to impact the community as well, and others can become infected by it. It's a bit like the yeast that leavens the whole lump of dough. And that has an impact upon a whole community. And that's why our sin is never just a private matter. It's never just about me and the Lord. It's always about us because of the way that it can impact us. And it can lead others into sin and into unholiness, putting them in that precarious place of falling short. Our passage ends with Esau finding no chance to repent. It's a, quite a hard verse. If you look at verse 17, you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is alluding to Genesis chapter 27, verses 30 to 40, when Jacob deceived Isaac and stole Esau's blessing. You remember he dressed up with skins on his hands and 
put the smell of his brother around him so that Isaac would bless him. And Isaac comes in afterwards and he realizes what's happened and he's devastated and he's in tears and he cries out, Isaac, is there not, Father, my father, is there not a blessing for me as well? But the story of Esau, as my friend pointed out to me this week, is framed by his wrongful intermarriages. Before and after his tears in Genesis 27, which suggests that his anguish is not really the sign of a heart of genuine faith, but rather of disappointment over what he had lost. Because he goes right after this and has another intermarriage with Ishmaelite women. Which leads us to perhaps ask the Lord whether our tears are sometime the same. Not the faith that Hebrews encourages in us, which doesn't lead to the blessing of God. I realize this is a sobering text in many ways, but I, I think it's an important one. We are called to love one another as Jesus has loved us, which includes this specific dimension of seeing to it that no one in our community falls into these places, that this doesn't happen in our own lives or in the lives of our brothers or sisters. And I realize this is challenging and it's messy and it's not easy. And I, what I want to say, though, is that this means that this is an important but often neglected dimension of being the community of Jesus. It is a muscle of love that needs to be rehabilitated in the context of the body of Christ for the health of the body and out of love for one another. This muscle needs to grow. When we don't call out sin, when we don't look at, at sin within our own hearts and in the community, we just embolden it in our life together. When we let certain behaviors go unchecked, we just embolden others to do the same, and it gets repeated, and it grows, and many more become defiled. Of course, we must first and primarily keep watch on ourselves and see to it that these things do not spring up within us, but we, we must also keep watch on one another and see to it that they don't spring up around us as well. Because the consequences are dire. And we experience even some of that now as a community. And now I know the moment I say that, I'm making you uncomfortable, the moment I say that, we have all just thought of people who think differently than us, right? And that's why this is complicated, but it's real. And what I'm asking us in light of this text and calling us to as the body of Christ is to enter into this dimension of love together gently and graciously. We must first see the log in our own eye, always, before we look at the speck or seek to take or remove the speck in our brother's eye. It is delicate. No one wants to go around, and frankly, we don't want any of us to go around calling out sin in everybody's life in a cavalier manner. That would destroy the fragile nature of the community of Jesus. Rather, when we do this, we do this with grace and gentleness, as instructed in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
We must do it. We're commanded to do it. But if we do it with harshness, with scolding judgment, without watching ourselves, then it could very well lead us into that same place, into the very sin that we despise in others. And don't think for a moment that the devil doesn't love that. We are not to be ignorant of his schemes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. So we do this with gentleness, but we are to do this. We are to see to it, as we read in verse 15. And when we lose this muscle, chaos can reign and destruction can ensue. In Deuteronomy 29, the consequences of this root of bitter fruit and poisonous fruit, it says, well, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. There's a kind of stark picture of a destruction of community. And this is why God speaks so strongly to this when he's renewing the covenant with his people as they're about to enter into the life together in the promised land. We cannot, in our own hearts and in our community, sit loose on sin in any and all forms. I'm not quite done, but let me pray again, just briefly. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to resist sin in our own hearts. I pray that you would shine your light upon the dark places of our souls that need to be confessed and forsaken, that need to find real repentance. Lord, and I pray where there is any root of bitterness within us, any stubbornness of heart, that you would expose that by your mercy and grace, even through our brothers and sisters, Lord. I pray that you would give us mercy. We long, Lord, to keep on keeping on together. We long to run with endurance. Please, Lord, give us grace for what is a delicate but commanded work of your spirit in your word. For the health of your body, we pray. Amen. Let me say that there is real power when a community takes up this call. Last summer when we were in Japan, I realized the power of kind of communal realities. I was told by Adrian and Becca that you basically if you left your phone or wallet somewhere on the street that you'd find it there when you went back a few hours later. There was a communal code that certain behaviors in that culture were just not accepted. And I was blown away by the sense of cleanliness. The, the, the irony was that in Japan they have no public trash cans but no trash on the ground, whereas in America we have public trash cans everywhere and trash all over the ground. What a community allows is significant and important. I remember studying in England and fi figuring out a custom that the British have that we don't, at least in my experience in America, didn't have, which is that when two people were in a conversation and a third person walked up to kind of join the conversation, in the, in the US, you would naturally just turn and acknowledge their presence and somehow incorporate them into the conversation. But at least where I was in the UK, the two people just kept talking and they never acknowledged the third person. It could go on five, ten minutes, but that was culturally accepted. Like, we're not going to let you bust in. I don't know if the British here would agree with what I just said, but <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't test that beforehand. As a, but a community has power in what it chooses to regulate within itself. And what this passage is teaching us 
is that we as a local church body are to exercise that watching over one another, one another that would render certain dimensions of our fleshly life to not be welcome. And that when we see it in ourselves, we, we run far from it. And when we see it in our brothers and sisters, we say no. Imagine a church that takes this exhortation seriously, not in self-righteous, high and mighty sense. Every one of us falls on our face before the cross of Jesus Christ as a sinner saved by his mercy and his grace. No one of us can take a higher place than any other in this space. We are all broken, all guilty, all dependent upon the mercy and grace of God. And therefore, in that broken place, we can exercise this muscle in gentleness and grace for the health of the body and for the glory of Jesus. To avoid something, I've always found that the greatest power is not to focus on that which you are to remove, but it is to focus on that which you are to possess. Again, the entire book of Hebrews centers around this, this exhortation that to run with endurance, what must you do first and foremost and always? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Cling tightly to him. So tightly that you're willing to endure anything that the world will throw at you and let go that you might be his. Are we looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? This is the way at the end of Hebrews that the author says this in a powerful way as we close. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate to shed his own blood, to sanctify us, to make us holy. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one falls short. Don't let anybody run back into the sin for which Christ shed his blood and died, through which he washed you once and for all, dying on the cross, that he might be a perfect sacrifice for sin. And you and I could be washed clean. He did that outside the gate. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Why? For here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's the posture. That's the plan. That's the heart of God for us as a community as we walk through challenges. It is to hold so tightly to Jesus. To, he holds us, we don't hold him, it's both. But we, we cling to him, we look to him because it is his glorious city to which we are all headed one day. And whatever you think about, whatever we're going through right now, all of us who believe in Jesus will be singing his praises together as we have today on that great and final day in the glorious Heaven, new heavens and new earth, where the angels and the, the elders bow down and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That's our future. Live for that future and see to it that no one falls short. I believe by the Spirit of God we can walk in that. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the grace of your word. We thank you for the depth of your love. We thank you for the provision of your Son, who is for us right now interceding as a faithful and merciful high priest over Park Street Church. What a glorious comfort that is, Lord. Forgive us for sin, my sin, our sin. God, we let go, and we ask that you would lead. We ask that you would grab our, our heads, put your hands around our foreheads, and fix our eyes upon your Son. We ask that you would heal and work and transform. In Jesus' name, amen.